I want to know everything there is to know about you. I am going to introduce me. You must have spotted her by now. She's always there. Don't I deserve love? Somebody has to like me best. You see, I believe that people like Madame Pearl and all these people here in this country who carry guns are the real assassins. Because, you see, they stimulate other people who are perhaps innocent and who eventually are the ones who pull the trigger. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Don't Know Her podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Michael. And today we are joined, really excitingly, with someone that we love on social media, we love her podcast, is Zita Short from the 300 Passions podcast. And you are very welcome. Hey, Zita. Hey, thank you so much for agreeing to have me on. I've been a long time fan of this podcast and I love offering recognition to those wonderful actresses who just don't seem to get enough support, especially on Twitter. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, and you've brought someone really incredible. But before we get into that, tell us a bit about your podcast. Yes, so my podcast focuses on unsuccessful nominees for the AFI 100 Years, 100 Passions list. So it's basically just American romantic films from every decade between the 1910s and the 2000s. There were only two 2000s films on the list, but it's a very wide range of movies and it's very fun covering all of them. Yes, super. It's great. And have you had had a favourite one so far, Zita, that you've done? Ooh, uh, well, I got to talk about Clueless, which I really oh. think is one of the masterpieces of the 90s and should be recognised as such. Love that. And who have you brought with you to our podcast? So the actress that I wanted to discuss is Geraldine Chaplin who has this really fascinating career. She is an English actress, the the daughter of Charlie Chaplin, obviously. And she spent most of her childhood in Switzerland. And then she goes on to have this really fascinating career where she crisscrosses between appearing in American independent films. She's in a lot of Altman pictures. She works with Ellen Rudolph a lot but also appears in a lot of Spanish films. She was romantically involved with director Carlos Saura for a long time, and they collaborated on several films. And so you get this incredibly wide range of movies that she's in. And then she'll also show up with a bit part in something like Martin Scorsese's The Age of Innocence. So she's really just in everything basically yeah and she seems so humble like so i openly would have known of her but not really thought much about geraldine before thinking about this episode and reading about her and her filmography and kind of not that she fell into film but it was it was you know david lean who saw her in a magazine and said, I want you in Dr. Shivago. And if, for whatever reason, she's like, she's a part of this industry. And as you say, we'll work with like Scorsese or like then be friends with Robert Altman, who's like, look, I have another part for you and all these sorts of things. 
And it's just, she's really delightful to listen to. She's just so cool. And so many interviews and stuff, she turns up with like sunglasses on her head. She's just like, yeah, whatever. Which I guess comes with part of being, you know, I can't imagine being the child of someone as iconic, like legendary as Charlie Chaplin would have been in there in his lifetime and then, you know, forever hers. But um, oh, I'm so glad you brought her to us. And do you have, do you like, do you remember when you first saw her or knew about her? So I think my first encounter with her would have been Nashville, which is one of those acclaimed classic films that I watched far too early. I think I would have been 11 or something. And I had no understanding of what made it an artistically satisfying film. I was very bored. I wanted all of the musical performances to end way before they did. And I remember the thing that I was most confounded by was her character. And in the film, she plays a mentally disturbed English woman who's pretending to be a BBC reporter. And she's doing all of these awful things, like showing up for an interview with an African-American singer who she only knows by name and assuming that he's white and then making racist comments. And then you also get a scene where she walks around a yard of yellow school buses that are seemingly being destroyed. And you hear her trying to construct a thesis about what they represent. The buses, the buses are empty and look almost menacing, threatening as so many yellow dragons watching me with their hollow, vacant eyes. I wonder how many little black children and little white children have yellow nightmares, their own special brand of fear for the yellow peril. I can't have, I can't stop. Damn it. It's got to be more positive. And I just remember being totally confused by it. And yet, years later, it did stick with me as this bizarre performance. And once I started to get into more Oldman, which I probably did after seeing McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is more accessible, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then I went down the rabbit hole and I saw Remember My Name and I saw all of her Spanish work and I just became a committed fan. Oh, I love it. Um, and what about you, Scott? Please impress us with something as equally fascinating oh, as Nashville at an early age. I'm so, so sorry. Uh, I think I'm the outlier in certainly being the least familiar with Geraldine Chaplin in her work. I'd be lying if I said I would have known her or recognised her on screen before um, you suggesting her, which made it all the more exciting for me. Everything that you're describing about Nashville, and I can only then imagine watching it at a young age and going, what is this that's going on? Uh, but she was delightful. What, what a whirlwind to watch. Uh, what I wasn't expecting, and I'm sure wrongly, is maybe just assuming she got to where she was because of her dad and things like this. And then what I saw from the few films I did watch was that she's incredibly versatile and in that she can bring so many different layers to what she's doing. It was a different person I was watching each time. And then also crossing that language barrier of being able to, to star in multiple 
foreign language films uh, outside of English was fascinating. So all I can say is thank you for bringing me more to, to my attention. I will be paying more attention from now on. Please. But what about you, Michael? She, I mean, I would have known who she was. And I guess when I was getting into film, like I would have been a completist to a point. So I would have seen, say, The Age of Innocence and talked to her and Dr. Dr. Shivago kind of in a similar time frame. So I was like, oh, she's just part of like the fabric of film. Um, I think it's interesting because those three films, while she's very good in, in all of them in supporting roles, do not showcase her range in the way that thankfully Zila you have brought to my attention in a big way and so I just kind of like oh what a great you know member of the Hollywood royalty although she'd hate that but you know filmmaking royalty let's say um so yeah I always knew who she was and you know something like Nashville has been on my list to watch for you know so many years and I am delighted to have seen that um so yeah, I feel like, and spoiler, um, I guess, but I feel like through watching these films, and in one film in particular, I'm just like, she's one of the most talented, underrated actors out there, I would say. And thankfully, she's been given the opportunities to be a leading um, actor as well as supporting. Um, so no, I'm so delighted. I just echo Scott. Thank you so much for bringing her to us. <laughs> That's, oh, and I love the fact that you noted that she really, I think, moved out of her father's shadow where you always get that issue yeah. where the offspring of very famous actors struggle to push back against their parents' image and you think, oh, is this just the modern-day version of so-and-so's father? And I don't think you get that with her where obviously she's not doing slapstick comedy but I also don't think she went the obvious route in becoming an English rose after making yeah. Dr. Zhivago. Exactly yeah that, that's something that's so fascinating to me so I because I got carried away a little bit I did watch Chaplin which is this Richard Attenborough film about Charlie Chaplin where um, Geraldine plays her grandmother Charlie's mother and for some reason, I I, I've been meaning, that's been on my list for a long time too. Um, and I thought, again, I don't know what I presumed. And that was, this is um, so striking to me, like how brave in a certain way, A, to take on that role, because that's such a like pop, pop cultural sort of, I don't know, like nowadays I feel like more would be made about that. But at the time, it just feels really natural. And she gives a properly, I don't know, moving performance with, about somebody that's so close to her and she's just oh yeah so she could easily have gone into the I don't know um, but yeah all in all this woman is a gift of a, a someone to focus on and I feel like filmmakers should be like climbing over themselves to work with her and it's shocking to me that they haven't been and regardless of the Charlie Chapman than um, connection is just because she is so talented and so versatile and has such a striking face. An incredibly striking face. Mm. Yes, and I, I think it's quite a, a gutsy performer too, even in in older age where, of course, we all know Hollywood not great at writing parts for older women. 
And I still think she's taking these roles where she really challenges herself and gets to display unattractive sides of a woman's personality on film in a way that I think is really admirable and interesting. Yeah, she really reminds me of Nicole Kidman to a point of like just throwing herself into these roles. And it's a shame that she wasn't given as many opportunities as someone like Nicole Kidman. Um, So that's just touching the iceberg of what this woman has accomplished. So Scott, please do tell us more. Right, let me do that indeed. Let's hop in and and talk a little bit more um, about Geraldine. So she was born on the 31st of July, 1944 in Santa Monica, California. As we've mentioned, she's the daughter of cinema legend Charlie Chaplin, and uh, her mother is Una O'Neill, who is an actress in her own right and was the daughter of uh, renowned playwright Eugene O'Neill. And following kind of an early upbringing in the US, and as we mentioned, uh, whilst on a trip to the UK and Europe on a family holiday, uh, Charlie Chaplin was exiled, basically, or showing communist sympathies, something which was a big no-no at the time, and refusing to go back to the States, they then uh, basically started uh, making a living for themselves and uh, based themselves in Switzerland. Um, From here, Geraldine finds her way over to England, uh, where she starts studying dance, and that is kind of her get into the industry, so to speak. So at 17, she began studying ballet in England, which included a period of time spent at the Royal Ballet School. And then following a very brief stint of actually working as a professional ballet dancer in Paris, she decided that she didn't want to do that anymore because she felt that by starting her studies so late that she wasn't as equipped as she would like to be to be a true dancer. She just felt it wasn't a fit. And I think she even said that she didn't leave ballet, ballet left her. And then from there, staying in Paris, she went on to start a career in modelling. And it was from there that she got herself noticed by very, very renowned director David Lean. And that led to her getting auditions and being cast ultimately in uh, a role in his adaptation of Dr. Zhivago in 1965, um, which garnered her a Golden Globe nomination for Most Promising Female Newcomer. So already showing herself in her own right as an actress. In 1967, we saw her Broadway debut in The Little Foxes, for which she gathered some more terrific reviews. And this was the year that saw her first collaboration with Spanish director uh, Carlos Saura uh, in Peppermint Frappe. And then she would go on to work uh, with him on nine films in total after committing to two more immediately after that one, uh, which were Stresses Three and Honeycomb. And then it was this relationship that would lead to a large chunk of her success coming within Spanish cinema. Other films she worked on with Saura included Crea Cuervos, Alisa Vidamia and Anna and the Wolves. And although she has had a good few successes within American cinema, um, Zita mentioned Scorsese's Age of Innocence. We also see The Hawaiians, Welcome to Ellie, which she received a BAFTA nomination for. Remember My Name, which is another uh, Alan Rudolph film, both of those Alan Rudolph. 
And then, of course, Nashville, as we've spoken about, where she works with Altman. But despite these kind of uh, American successes, she even cites herself that the, the kind of main successes she felt within her career came out of Europe particularly during that spell in the 70s and 80s. She then worked for a fair bit in French cinema as well, in films like Life is a Bed of Roses and uh, Jaquette Rivette's Love on the Ground. But again, Spanish cinema called her and she had another run of um, primarily Spanish work in the likes of Guillermo del Toro's The Orphanage and Pedro Almodovar's Talk to Her. Other noteworthy film roles for Geraldine include a few maybe more recent ones, such as Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, The Impossible, and A Monster Calls. She's also worked a fair bit in television, and maybe some of the more recent credits that might be familiar are The Crown, Electric Dreams, and The Hollow Crown. And maybe also, also worth pointing out that it's not just Charlie Chaplin who uh, made a big splash in her life within the Hollywood world. She is also the mother of Una Chaplin, who also in her own right is doing incredibly well in television, known for things like Game of Thrones, and is slated for the next 45 uh, Avatar films. So very exciting times for <laughs> Una Chaplin. But yeah, Geraldine, a, a fruitful and really interesting career. And the variety that you've pointed out from these kind of European adventures makes her certainly unique or from anyone else we've spoken about on the podcast. So really exciting. So yay, Geraldine. Yeah, she's she's marvellous. She's marvellous. <laughs> You're quite right. She's absolutely marvellous. And shall we start? Because I'm so interested to hear more about your young self and now your older self and Nashville, because I cannot imagine watching that film for the first time as a youngster. Um, like I'm in my 30s and I watched it and I was surprised by what it was offering so i can only imagine what it was like yes it's definitely one of those ones that uh, and this sounds so pretentious but i i really do feel like it's a movie for film nods and i do think you need to go into it with a considerable amount of knowledge of things like film mm. theory and it's this very intellectual cerebral experience on a lot of levels it probably won't emotionally move you other than a couple of subplots and I think the humor can be very hard to pick up on and I've mm. seen it I think five times at this point and wow. there are still aspects of it where I'm just not on its wavelength in terms of certain subplots and then I'll have people talk to me and go no wait that's the best part of the film and that's where yeah. the political subtext really comes through and I think even now I feel like I understand maybe 60% of it, but I'm definitely more on board with the satire today. And I do find it really fascinating how it mocks so many different sort of subsections of music culture, but then just generally the media and I appreciate the fact that especially in the form of Geraldine's character you have these very specific types of hack journalists where she's actually somebody who's not a real journalist but I do think it pokes fun at people working in the media without being a criticism that's too general where I think you get that with some recent satires like that 
was it a John Stewart movie, Irresistible, that everyone mm. despised, where that movie seemed to just sort of throw its hands up in the air and say, I don't yeah. know, it's all bad, which maybe that's true, but in terms of getting the audience to think or laugh or have an emotional response to something isn't very effective. And I think the movie really keeps you guessing. But having watched it the first time, I remember the utter befuddlement that I felt when I discovered that, oh, no, she's actually not even the journalist that she's pretending to be. This is just an insane woman. Yeah, it's a real, it's really interesting. Like, she manages to be on the right side of believable even as you mentioned earlier she's walking in kind of these you know these like this dumpster pit of cars or buses and you're like well no it makes no sense what this person is doing in terms of journalism but there is something about her like she has this real I don't know like sincere interest in capturing what's going on in Nashville and so that makes it believable and you kind of, I, I, I know what you're saying about the emotion, but for whatever reason, I found her really endearing. And I think it's because perhaps in my professional life, I work with certain, with, with, I'd be aware of journalists and some of the people that are the best kind of journalists or the ones I find most endearing are the ones like her who just are so eager to be part of the fun too. Um, and I should say, before we keep going in, just give a little rundown of the story because there's no way I could <laughs> really cover it. But it really is a story about four, 24 main characters over five days in Nashville as they lead up to this big gala political event. And you have all sorts of characters. Um, and yeah, Geraldine, I think Geraldine's a real standout performer. So the film does get um, quite a few Oscar nominations, two for supporting actress for Ronnie Blakely, who is, I think, terrific as this singer who, um, <laughs> I don't I see, I don't want to spoil it, but she goes on a really fascinating journey and a really fascinating performance. And then Lily Tomlin, who I found really moving. There's a the sequence where she's listening to um, the music. And I know what you're saying earlier about wanting to, you know, cut the things down. And that was a scene that definitely could have been cut down potentially, let's say. Um, but I was just so moved by all these people listening to this track and Louis Tomlin yearning for something. I don't, I, so I was quite like emotionally invested in a way I wasn't expecting of, of it. Um, but all in all, it's, a, it's, it's much wilder than I ever thought it was going to be. I think I'm more used to, like my Robert Altman would be like the player or Gosford Park, um, or even Prairie Home Companion. Is that the right name for that? Um, his other musical mm -hmm. kind of yeah. um, But they're all much more straightforward than Nashville. Um, I loved it. I love spending time with it. And I cannot wait to see it five times like you, <laughs> because there is going to be so much in it. There is so much in it. I mean, this was the first time for me as well. And actually, interestingly, I was just back at home in Scotland. And knowing that this was coming up, I have had a DVD of Nashville for probably about 10 years sitting in a drawer. And I was like, oh, perfect. It's coming back down to London with me. I'm going to be able to watch it to, to prep for this episode. And I think I put it off for so long because I was I knew it was this um, kind of sprawling tale of a lot of people. And I was aware of some, some of the kind of 
flourishes of it. So the, the use of sound, this kind of natural sound where you are hearing every background noise going on beyond the kind of character's dialogue that's going on at the front of it. So I think in that in my head, I maybe thought I had to really kind of sit down and prepare myself for what I was going to watch. However, it's incredibly immersive. And for me, I therefore found it to be a really easy in. Something about it just being so alive and these characters all feeling incredibly lived in and honest and truthful mm. was was so wonderful. And I know, obviously, he is the master of this kind of piece. Um, but having seen quite a few of his as well, this really blew me away. And I was like, oh, I understand why this is the touch point of Altman's career. It makes sense of things that came after it. But I just, I, I really felt like I was in it in a way I have not felt with a film for a long time, especially the sounds of kind of the announcements that are being made over these loudspeakers. And you're having these conversations, people in queues of traffic talking to each other. I was like, wow, this is so, I can feel the heartbeat of this film. I am there, I am with them, and I'm transported. And to me, that is absolute movie magic. So I'm now on watching it once, Eta, I'm not surprised that you've gone back multiple times. What is it that that's drawn you back as many times, or or what is it? Is it trying to figure out those things you say you're still pass you by? I think that's part of it, but I also think it's one of those ones where your response to it changes as you get older and as you experience band the frames of reference that you have to relate it to because i definitely admit in the donald trump era it's de well in the post-trump era yeah. which we're sort of living in <laughs> yeah. it was definitely a very different film to watch where you do have this insane right winger in the white house which had definitely happened before obviously ronald mm -hmm. reagan existed unfortunately but you can't help but feel horrified during the scenes where you hear these announcements from this crackpot politician talking about how I'll get rid of taxation. And then five minutes later, he's saying something awful and jingoistic. And you think, oh, well, this is what Trump is actually like. This is meant to be a ridiculous over-the-top caricature of what this sort of political candidate is like but no we have a person in real life who is exactly like this and so i think it does gain deeper resonance when you view it that way but also just uh, because i think it's a really interesting reflection on celebrity culture too where i'm not necessarily a music person. I, I'm not super interested in musicians as celebrities in the way that I'm fascinated by old Hollywood actors, say, but mm -hmm. I still think the film goes out of its way to make points about how fame changes people. And I remember being surprised that the Keith Carradine character, who I had thought was just sort of an accessory in the Lily Tomlin plotline is actually fairly well developed as a character and mm -hmm. has his own emotional arc to go on. And you really do get sucked into that. And that was a shock for me on rewatching it, mm -hmm. where I had always thought of him as the one who's just sort of there to throw her life 
out of balance. And then you realize, oh no, there's a lot going on with his music group falling apart and he's having an affair with one of his fellow musicians who's also married to his best friend. And so there's just a lot going on there. And it's very fascinating. Yeah, it feels like it like it's endless what you could mm. get out of that film. Um, we had just recently watched Crash for our previous episode. Mm. And it feels like it, watching them very close together highlights the strengths and weaknesses of of, um, of, of one and the other. Because you're like, God, if only if Crash had like living, breathing characters and this felt like a genuine world, this could have been a great film. And Nashville, you're like, oh, what a, as you say, like any, you pick any of those characters that at first you might be like, okay, they're kind of just there to support this story or it's not like, it's not that the plot is is the most important thing. What's most important to Altman, it seems, are these characters and like the details of their lives. Um, yeah, I, I I loved it. I'm so glad um, you brought this uh, to our attention. And I would say, like, if you were to give the film two Oscar nominations for Best Supporting Actress, would you have included Geraldine Chaplin? Yes, I would. Unfortunately, I might kick Ronnie Blakely out, sorry. <laughs> and I think the Lily Tomlin nomination is completely justified. And I'm really glad that she got nominated for something like this, but I still think you get some of those Lily Tomlin trademarks from a lot of the comedic yeah. performances that we know her for. But again, her character is fascinating as this white woman who's working as a soul singer but there's also the sense yeah. that she only has that position because her husband is this executive and she's in this unhappy marriage but she's also seemingly an attentive and loving mother and so it's interesting to see her character trying to reconcile all of those different facets of her personality and i think the a fair plot line, which could have been really tacky and tawdry, doesn't necessarily go in the direction that you think it will and ends on this very emotionally nuanced note where it's not just the stuff of a trashy romance novel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I I do think Lily Tomlin. And this kind of guess I'm just a diehard fan. So to watch her give such a great performance in such a great film was so rewarding. But I think you're right. I think I would have included um, uh, Chaplin in the two nominees for best supporting actress. Um, but it does seem hard. Like outside to Lily Tomlin, it's like oh, I you know, there's lots I could. Yeah, I don't know. Different viewing, I'd have a different opinion, perhaps. It's um, there's something special about her presence there, though, in that her accent, which is so specifically mm. capturing the type of person she's playing as well, which is quite good. So even though she is, like you're saying, playing a kind of hack journalist, she must have studied like BBC journals of that time because she really gets it. And the voice just cuts through everything. Like I'm saying about the noise and the immersion of it, the kind of Americanisms blend together, but she cuts through it. So she really is hard to ignore within the context of the film. But also beyond her accent, she's doing a terrific job. 
moving on from Nashville, Scott, is there a film that stood out to you in what we've watched for Geraldine as a newbie to her? Um, well, to be honest, the, all of the films we picked really stood out and only one of them I'd seen before. For her in particular, ooh, it's a it's a toss up between a couple, but I'm going to flag Remember My Name, which Zita's already mentioned at the beginning as, as kind of one of the entry points for you as well, where you track that one down. A 1978 film by Alan Rudolph about a woman released from prison and we're kind of just um encountering her as she's uh, reintegrating into life and society what's the matter are you scared of women look what do you want from me i want a set of clean sheets and i want drapes for my windows what 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 i want my house livable you have to make it livable yourself oh listen to that isn't that just typical of a stone cop? But quite quickly, we understand that she seems to find an obsession with a married couple. Um, and initially, it seems that there's no kind of immediate reason why that should be. However, obviously, things unfold. But for for me, her in this, and I think it's it's good to talk about her completely removed from the context of her dad, and like you'd said earlier, Zita, she, it's easy to do that because she isn't doing the specific work he did. However, the kind of naivety we see at the beginning of this film, I was seeing shades of her dad and I could understand that, that she might have gotten something from that. They, I mean, she does a lot in this and actually the arc of her character and the development of her performance in particular is really interesting and she's allowed to cover a lot of ground. So it really showcases her as a performer. But those bits at the beginning, I, I really believed her as this fresh individual, like alien again to the world, um, really prepared to embrace anyone she encounters and then we learn a little bit more. But she did wonderfully at that. What What was your feelings on, on Remember My Name when you first encountered it? Because it sounds like that may be also factored into your love. Definitely, yes. And I feel like this movie gets introduced to a lot of people as the art house version of Fatal Attraction, where I think it's different because obviously the relationship dynamic is changed a bit, but you definitely watch it and you're on shakier ground than you are in Fatal Attraction, which does deserve some credit for being psychologically complex in some ways. But as a lot of people point out, the gender dynamics in that film are quite clear cut, where this man is threatened by a career woman, but because the movie hates women on some level, career woman just want to have babies and actually just want to steal men who are married to housewives. And so I think this movie goes a bit further in presenting this very complicated portrait of this relationship between, you could say, three people who seem mutually obsessed on some level, where she's this aggressor, she is harassing him, she's making his life hell. And then I feel like you get that scene once the action has sort of died down, 
where you have no idea what's going on. Suddenly, he's treating her like they're on a date and he wants to sleep with her and it's all very bizarre and I just don't think you would get that in a mainstream thriller in which a woman boils a bunny and it was just so intoxicating to me. I, I think it really does what a good thriller should do where it keeps you on the knife's edge at every turn. You never really fully grasp what's going on. There are definitely a lot of gaps to be filled in in terms of what their shared history is. But I also think the actors are really good at giving off the sense that they know exactly what their character's biography is without letting the audience know too much. And she gives this fascinating performance because her character has all of these bizarre quirks, even though she is very much a crazy stalker. But she has this whole thing where she doesn't like people touching her. And she, she does that a lot. And I remember thinking, that's sort of weird. But then it does somehow make sense when you have her talking about what she wants out of a relationship. And she's one of those people who enjoys toying with people and pushing them and provoking them, but absolutely cannot handle it when anybody else teases her or attempts to manipulate her and just implodes whenever that happens. And I, for some reason, love characters like that, where they're just incredibly fragile, they can dish it out, but they absolutely can't take it. She is, it really is such a striking film and works largely because of the performances. I mean, it's so well scripted. Like you were saying, there it starts and you're not quite sure where you stand and then you're like oh she was in prison and then you're like and then something else happens and you're like oh now I don't understand what's happening with this couple and she's obsessed and you're like oh wait now they're on a date and I think that is as you say like that is so thrilling and it's so well judged and balanced by everybody Alan Rudolph as the writer-director the performers it was like I was so you know I don't even know how to word because immersed isn't really the right word I was on the edge of my seat because I was fascinated as well as just watching somebody give to my mind like one of the best performances on screen that I've never heard anyone talk about in the same line like I put this up there with you know some of my favorites like Gina Rowlands in opening night or or there's so many so many people I just think she's so good at going between being a victim being the aggressor being a love interest, being the bunny boiler, being all these different things and making it all believable in the same person. Um, her how, how she, like, interacts, like, it's startling. So you see her as kind of timid at some points. And then the way she talks to Alfrey, Alfrey Woodard, who she's working with in this shop, you're like, oh, my Lord, like, <laughs> this woman is really going to bite if somebody doesn't agree with her. And then you see her walk around the couple's home that she's obsessed with and the way she interacts with the wife who's never met her and doesn't know who she is is so startling she like mimics her how do you know my name how do you know neil how do you know my name how do you know neil she picks up a knife <laughs> she like she's just, it's just like wow this is crazy behavior 
yet something's really endearing about it. She's like she's a real anti-hero sort of style, which sadly we still don't get many female characters like that um, in the lead. And then all the while we have like the TV is on or you hear the news and there's this like earthquake and like all these awful things happening. And you're just like, this feels so relevant to today. You know, this is however many years old. And you're like, this is what the world is like. Like all these terrible things are happening, but people go along with their lives and act in ways that are making some, like on an individual level and are messing up people's lives, you know, and terrorizing them, <laughs> destroying their flowers. I I was obsessed with this film. Like I cannot wait to watch it again. Okay. I loved it. It was so exciting to, I mean, you already called her out, but I was thinking, why do I know this film? And it's because we did an episode on Alfrey and it would have been coming up in lists when looking at that. And I was like, oh goodness, there she is another gem oh and seeing them play off of each other was really terrific they worked so well together in those kind of more uh confrontational scenes really good energy they have a really interesting dynamic and why i like i'm, I'm so confused to why this film is not more celebrated like i don't i was looking at you know how it performed and everything like it hasn't we haven't even mentioned the person playing the um one of the people in the couple is anthony perkins who people will most well know for a psycho alfred hitchcock's film um but yeah i just don't understand had robert altman producing it i just feel like it did it did well but not you know nobody talks about it it seems to be the sort of movie um that hasn't had any kind of release like i watched it um Actually, legally, it's been shared as an archive thing, but that's the only way I could get it online, and we will share that uh, link in the in the notes. But yeah, like I wonder why. Like I just don't, I don't understand. Mm. I don't either. I really think it's ripe for rediscovery, especially in a post Me Too age and at a time when we're having these debates about the depiction of this sort of abusive obsessive relationship on screen and i really think for people who enjoy something like l this would be really yeah. interesting because again it's this very twisted emotional bond between two people and it's far more complicated than it initially appears to be and i think people are really hungry for stories about this subject matter told in this way in a time period in which we are seeing no things like sexual abuse do not have to be clean cut on screen and we don't need to have stories about only perfect victims and it can be far more complex than films and television about these subjects generally make it out to be yeah i do there's a part of me also that thinks there must be some you know budding emerging filmmaker where this film has like, informed them or um, inspired them in some way Um, like it's interesting i was thinking of isabel huper i was like who would play this part and weirdly fatal attraction didn't occur to me it was um isabel huper like in a few different films <laughs> where she plays uh for want of a better phrase, a woman on the verge of a breakdown because of how she finds herself in society. Um, yeah, I love that. Hook me up to any of those. I will. I will watch it. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully we'll we'll find 
an audience, yeah, some sort of appreciation. It just seems wild to me that it hasn't. Um, but Nicole Kidman, maybe she'll remake it. That would be. <laughs> I mean, if Nicole knows it exists, she's going to get it. She's going to have a wig, maybe a few wigs. She could do a few in the film. It's going to be perfect. <laughs> More wigs, the better. So on the topic of, say, sexual assault and gender, an interesting film to rewatch, and actually the only one that I'd seen before was Pedro Motivard's Talk to Her which I had seen, I've seen a few times, but all as a, you know, maybe 15 years ago or however many years ago when I was getting really into film and to watch it now in the Me Too, post Me Too movement, I guess, or Me Too movement and all this awareness of gender and also like listening, like knowing more and more about Pedro Motivar, I just found it so tricky, like a really tricky watch um I really did like um for those who do not know talk to her is a story um which I'm, I'm going to find hard to explain without spoiling but it's set in a in a care home where people are hmm what is the med- medical term for their their body they're asleep basically in a coma, oh my god. So what <laughs> lost all the words. They're in a coma and um there's a few different stories happening at the same time, but essentially two uh, pairings and one is already in a coma when they we meet them and they're being looked after by a nurse, a male nurse, and we are then meet another story of a bullfighter who is in the process of separating from their current partner and meets a new partner. And this partner has also, at the start of the film, happened to sit beside the nurse at um, a Pina Bausch, of all things, performance and is emotionally... Uh, they, they have a, a, a connection, let's say. Um, and the story follows uh, the men really like it does follow the women too but as the women are spend a lot of the time in a coma um or or kind of off screen some of their behavior it is really striking and for one like guess pedro motivar is known for you know his exploration of gender and sexuality and of course i guess somebody that's doing that some of their work and some of what they're saying about the world will age but i think talk to her will probably be the example of the of, of his work that will probably age the worst the longer we move away from it which is ironic as it is the one where he won best original screenplay at the oscars was nominated for best director is probably one of the one of the more celebrated films um but anyway sorry i i don't know what you guys thought of it i just found it so striking and watching it against some of the other films for geraldine i was like whoa this is a loaded film and I'm not even sure Omodovar was a, quite aware of what he's doing outside of there's a, this rape scene which is very fantastical um, but outside of that I'm I'm just it's just there's so many things to it and I was just like whoa this is loaded it's it's definitely a very tricky one um, I had seen this one before as well it's the other one I had seen before uh, I think 
you're making a fair point, and and that may be the case that there that he maybe would reflect on it differently now. I'm not sure, but it does read to me that that central character and what's his name again? Benino. 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 So yeah, the character of Benino to me is written as a grotesque, and a grotesque is a character where you both are repulsed by what they're doing. Um, but also have some kind of sympathy for. So it puts you in a kind of moral dilemma within the writing and within how the film plays out. Now, there are examples of grotesque in films where it can be confusing and it can cause this sort of um, uh, conflict in, in how you look at it. The most recent example I can think of is, in very different terms, I must say, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, where we have Sam Rockwell's character, which I think is written also as a grotesque character, where the kind of his attitudes um, are supposed to make us feel one way, and they should. Uh, we should be repulsed by his actions. However, it kind of it pushes you towards feeling sympathy. I think Talk to Her is a far more tricky case. Um, However, I do think it's sort of pitched like that. It's maybe kind of the, the journey it goes on does muddle it a little, a little bit more. But for me, I think that was part of what made it intriguing is I like that it was challenging me. Um, I didn't remember quite how challenging it was from the first time I watched it. And I did find it mm. was challenging me. But ultimately, I did find it to be a rewarding experience would be my take anyway. Mm. It is very much like Three Billboards. I hadn't even thought of that comparison. Even uh, it, it probably even more so leans into at the end inviting people to feel sympathy for him. Um, it's a really, it's a really fascinating. I'm just so fascinated by it. Um, yeah, and Geraldine. So she plays the ballet, she's like the head of the ballet school, which the woman at the start who's in the coma was part of, and she treats her like she's her daughter. And she's really lovely, like she plays her music, she like, <laughs> or brings her music. Um, she's actually quite, seems to be quite fond of the nurse as well, at the obviously at the start. Um, and she has arguably kind of uh, quite an important, well, she informs the ending I guess, or you can read into it that she informs the ending, like for what she she's has a conversation and you're like, yeah, I know what's going to happen now. I don't agree with what's going to happen now. I think you should leave the woman in the coma alone, you stupid men. But like if, if, if they're kind of going for a happier ending um, or maybe I'm just reading into it, it's the way the titles are work and they you can see that the suggestion is she's going to fall in love with the other man. Um, but I love, like, Geraldine, as a dancer, coming full circle, is perfect. Um, and I think my memory of Talk to Her also had her as a larger part in the film. So I was a bit disappointed she was only in, maybe even a handful of scenes doesn't seem right, but she is in, I guess, a handful of scenes. Where's her storyline? I'd love to hear more about her character. Definitely, yeah. No, I was a bit disappointed too. Like you, I remembered her being in or playing a larger part in the film, but I still think when she shows up, she's quite an electrifying presence. And I can definitely see what you're saying in terms of your 
reservations about how the film depicts certain sensitive content and it's not necessarily the most tasteful exploration yeah. of these themes you could definitely say but i still think that there does seem to be something fresh and current about the film's willingness to go there and especially when this movie comes out at a time when i think you have all of those awful miramax films that came with this sense of pomp and circumstance and we are seeing something important we're being we're being brave for saying something that would have been controversial 20 years ago and i think at least this movie does seem like it's trying to do something the ambition is there and i don't think it's a perfect film i wouldn't put it among the 60 greatest films of all time which i believe paul streeter did but i definitely see why it was so popular in 2002 and it got all of those academy award nominations it won things and i would love to see more of that for spanish films and i know controversially it was not submitted for best international feature which was a strange choice on their part well Almodovar I mean I so I am um, contrary to what it might have sounded like such a huge fan of Pedro Almodovar which I guess is the other reason I'd be kind of hypercritical particularly talking about it on a podcast and having it recorded but yeah he makes a song and dance every time when Spain does not select his film like I it's the way it's structured, I guess. If you're in charge of Spanish cinema, you cannot select the same person again and again. Um, as much as I would if I was in charge of the jury. Because I feel like Parallel Mothers this year, 2022, wasn't selected for Spain either, right? Um, and he'll make a song and dance about that as well. Um, but fair play to him. But yeah, talk to her. That's probably one of the reasons it was nominated in these other categories. Um, but I loved him. And I, I love him. And... It's interesting what you're saying, because you're right, it is a, it's, what it's touching upon is interesting. And I don't know if you guys have seen The Skin I Live In, which is the Antonio Banderas film, which yeah. is also revolves around um, a sexual assault. Um, and then there's a, there's a huge questions of consent and also, I think that film deals with a similar subject matter in a much more uh, meaningful sort of, not meaningful, in a much more thoughtful way I think that's my fear of talk to her is that outside of like how do you depict rape on screen I'm a, I'm not sure how much was thought about that action and that behavior in a way that was outside of kind of what you're talking about the grotesque kind of characterization um I think I was just so surprised and I was like whoa the, I, this is shocking that this wouldn't have occurred to me before that this is this character that we have been informed to feel sorry for really doesn't deserve my my empathy um um as much as i love the actor um is javier camera is that how you say his name anyway he's in loads of a mode of our film so great to see him in a, as a lead in a mode of our film too but um but yeah um but I imagine he likes the idea of people having these conversations and it not being simple and not being handed to you on a plate. 
And normally the kind of discussion points of his films, like Parallel Mothers, for example, comes more in the undertone, the, the layering of politics and whatever it might be. In this one, it's a far muddier subject matter. But I still think he would be intrigued to know how people allow it to play out in their heads and in their discussions. Um, but yeah, to, to kind of loop it back to Geraldine again, I do love her presence here. I love that she is... Um, She's a kind of character, and you can imagine her as a teacher. I think I would have known teachers like this in my life, where in the moment where she is playing her the music as as the character of Alicia's comatose, you imagine that that doesn't matter to her. I think she's sort of fine to be someone who talks at you. So this presence in her life might be a welcome one and that she's able to kind of talk at someone and make them listen to certain things and do these things but with joy not with any contempt or anything like that she you can see there's a lot of love there um but i kind of like that feeling of this works for her this dynamic still kind of works for her um she plays it so nicely mm. yeah she's like a firm mistress i love it i love when when um she's out of the coma and she's like are you tired? And she says, yes, because great. Well, we'll do more exercises. <laughs> you're like, my God, it's like, a... but, but it's with love. It's not out of um, like, you're going to be a dancer again. Cause presumably she wouldn't be. It's just like, yeah, there's a, you, there's a real character there and she's a real, um, yeah, she's a really great supporting part in that film. And then the last film that we chose, or well, Zita uh, chose for us to to look at, Geraldine, is one I'm really nervous to pronounce because <laughs> I'm totally going to get it wrong. My pronunciation is always wrong. I'm not Kriya oh, Sovos. No, no, Kriya Sovos. That's not right. Kriya Somebody Kriya else says Kriyavos. That's what I would say. Zita, maybe you'd be the best at this job. <laughs> Kriya. Cuervos? Love it. That sounded like the most elegant. Yeah, it says, which is such a, like, I have such a soft spot for films about childhood and about children coming to terms with the realities of the world. And this is such a wonderful example. So we meet an eight-year-old called Anna and she hears her father um struggling and f like he he and then sees a woman leaving um he's having a heart attack it turns out she goes to the kitchen speaks to her mother played by Geraldine Chaplin and then you realize that her mother's also passed so she's having this this sort of um i don't know reckoning in terms of her parents parents have passed away she's now being looked after by two relatives that are not as they're not her parents and she's trying to figure that out as they're trying to figure out how to be um, uh, present for them and available. Um, it's great. And then you have Geraldine, you know, coming in and out as kind of a ghost-like figure, but also quite, so she's like a, um, a figment of her imagination or memory perhaps. But then you also have her in kind of documentary style talking to the camera as the older future Anna. Um, and I, I was so taken by this film. Sita, had you seen it before? I had, yes. This was a big part of my early exploration of her filmography. It's probably her most well-known collaboration with her then romantic partner, 
and I think you can see why it's got a lot of those distinctive Saura touches and oh, this is going to sound sort of stereotypy, but I definitely think one of the things that people associate with Spanish cinema is this use of surrealism and this effort to blur the line between the afterlife and the, the reality that stands before a person. And I also think a lot of these Spanish films about childhood, I've noticed, are not very sentimental. They present mm. this very rough, harsh view of the world. And a lot of them seem to present childhood as this thing that you sort of have to suffer through before figuring out who you really are and rebuilding yourself in adulthood. And while I don't necessarily have that bleak of a view of my own childhood, <laughs> I definitely enjoy it when you get films that yeah. take this period of a person's life, which is usually presented as this golden age that everybody wants to return to. And this movie says, no, remember when you were nine, it was awful in a lot of ways and you had no control and you had to deal with a, a troubled relationship with your aunt. And I think it brings back a lot of emotions and memories that you might have suppressed. Mm. Yeah, it's totally true. There's so many lovely moments in it. There's a bit, so I have two siblings and we, as all siblings, I guess, will do, would entertain ourselves. And there's a moment in the film where they dance to this pop song um, and they're told to stop it, but then it comes back. And, and it just made me really um, reflect on that and be like, well, there's some of the happiest moments of my life and I wouldn't have known it at the time. Um, and so it's kind of a bittersweet thing to be like, oh, you know, I, I'm very lucky that I have those those memories, but I wouldn't have thought of it. Um, I guess that's a positive spin on what you've said. <laughs> I'm too much of an optimistic person, but there would have been, you know, funerals. Like I'll always remember in Ireland, I don't know what the case is like in New Zealand for funerals, but we have open caskets and stuff, um, which I read in the UK where I'm based at the moment, that is not a thing. Um, and when people ask about it, like I'm like, well, maybe as a kid that was kind of scary, Do you know. Like, and I think about it, I'm like, yeah, that is a the idea of someone and how like um, funerals happen so quickly in Ireland in the morning and all that. It just made that made me think of it. You know, at the start when Anna's being like, go and kiss your father and do all this, and he's dead in the coffin. Um, you're like, oh, these traditions are, you know, intense for. And to putting them onto children, that's intense. Um, yeah, you're right. It has a lot of space to reflect on your own experiences of the world at that age. Yeah, it captures something about it so well, though. I mean, the, the imagery in this film will really stay with me because of that balance between the natural and the peculiar. And the peculiar comes from the, the, the child outlook on the world and the natural is how the film kind of sets her and the balance of those two things is fascinating the things we see her doing against the backdrop of everything that's going on to her is incredibly captivating and interesting almost I mean it's because it's so natural it, it doesn't kind of dip into the sort of more surreal side but there's elements of it which do kind of swirl you into this almost magical place 
Um, it's really, really wonderful. And she, to me, was incredibly captivating in it. Um, yeah. Geraldine Chaplin, that is. I mean, also the lead actress playing Anne, it was fabulous. But what do you make of, of Geraldine's performance here, Zita? How, how does this kind of rank within what she's done? I would rank it quite highly just because I think there's such a high expectation for her performance in that she needs to exist as this presence within a young girl's mind where you're meant to understand that this is how this girl imagines her mother and not necessarily what her mother was actually like and so I think it is interesting to see her playing around with how a young girl would have idealized a mother figure in some ways and then as the older Anna it's fascinating to see that contrast between her as this idealized softly lit figure that we view with admiration and then I think you have this older woman who seems quite serious quite dry quite mm. able to look back on the past in a fairly unemotional way and I think that contrast really works and she also overcomes the not necessarily language barrier from what I've heard from my Dominican friend she does speak very good Spanish but I do think that whole accent thing can be a deterrent for some actors yeah. when it comes to acting in a different language I know Jane Fonda got trashed for making French films in the 60s and so I think she never seems awkward in her line delivery I would say you don't get the sense that this is someone delivering a fanatic performance and I mm. think it just comes across as so assured and so naturalistic yeah she's she's great and out of all the films we well actually let's extend it to everything what do you think is Geraldine Chaplin's best performance Cedar? Remember my name. Great. <laughs> that, that is by far, like, from what I've seen, I'm just so in awe of what she achieves in that film. Um, would you agree, Scott, from, from your yes, from introduction? The, from the introduction and still the far too few that I have seen, yes, it was Remember My Name, but that is not any slight at all in what she's doing elsewhere, which is still absolutely fabulous. But it's really, as we pointed out when I'm talking about it, it's really incredible work. So one to be remembered for. And is there any films that we've not touched upon, Zita, that uh, before we go on to the quiz and looking at what we wish she did do or will do, is there any films that you would highlight people seek out in addition to what we've talked about? Well, I think she gives a really interesting performance in Welcome to L.A., which is another Ellen Rudolph film. And it's also worth seeing because Sissy Spacek gives a fantastic performance in it, too. And you could say it does tread over some familiar ground if you're familiar with Oldman's work. But I do think it has this really quirky, offbeat vibe that I just found to be really inviting and it's this fascinating look at how the industry worked in the 70s in Hollywood and you've got this incredible ensemble cast just coming together and presenting these really 
off-putting, occasionally unlikable people in a surprisingly sympathetic light and you find yourself almost enjoying being in their company in a way that you don't expect to be, where they're all pretentious, they're all awful on some level, but you find a way to be charmed by them. Amazing. And Geraldine plays someone, I've not seen it, but what I read about it is she plays someone addicted to taxis. Is that right? It sounds amazing. Yes. And the Greta Garbo film, Camille. So that's quite <laughs> funny. Yeah. I'm, I. This is on my list now. I'm continuing my um, Geraldine Chaplin phase of my life uh, forever. <laughs> um, well, great. Okay. Well, I'm going to test you guys. It is not about Geraldine Chaplin per se, but it's about two things which I think we all hold dear. Well, one in particular, the Oscars and families that are Hollywood families, filmmaking families, dynasties, um, if you're ready to play. Sure. And whoever wins gets to choose their prize, but it has to be Geraldine Chaplin orientated. (laughs) So it can be like a dance with her. (laughs) We've had all sorts of things. Scott once got a a plush teddy of Angela Bassett as a prize. So, and I wish I I wish that was actually real in in that did exist. But uh, he uh, Michael assures me it still is in transit. I just try and sort out the copyright claims of Angela and also the like, <laughs> she has a few different problems with you having a plush teddy. Oh, Angela. Okay, great. So who would like to go first? I'll ask each of you a question individually. Scott, do you want to be first? Or no, Sita, you are our guest. <laughs> we will start. And this hopefully will be some of these questions are super hard and some of them are super easy so (laughs) welcome to to our world Sita it doesn't really make sense um okay so we all know the Coppola's can you name the Oscar nominated and or winning members of the Coppola family so Francis Ford Coppola yeah Sophia Coppola. Yeah. Nicholas Cage. Yeah. And who was Eleanor nominated? Was no. Carmine. Yeah. Really? Oh, okay. Because yeah. I know his what had to be changed later. His what had to be changed? His didn't he, he did the score and then Francis yes. Ford Coppola privately disliked it and brought someone else in to change his father's work, which (laughs) sounds stressful. (laughs) Lord. I'm sure that was a happy um, moment, but he still got his Oscar for someone else's work. Wow, that's fascinating. What a a fact to reel out. (laughs) And there are two other nominees directly in the uh, Coppola family. Ooh. So I know Roman is a producer. I don't know if he's been nominated. He is. He's a nominee for writing uh, Moonrise Kingdom with Wes Anderson. Yeah. Okay. Who else is there? I'll say it's a woman. Oh, Talia Shire. Yeah. 
I was like, God, if you knew Carmine, I was like, where's Talia? <laughs> Great. And there is, there are um, like additions to the couple of families. So for Brownie Point, if you could mention anyone who was potentially married or previously married to Ooh, the Patricia couple of really... Yeah. And then the other person, people I have at David Shire and Spike, Spike Jones. Jones. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You get all the points. Wow. Amazing. I am so bowled over. I don't want to go up against you, Zita. You have an encyclopedic brain that is so impressive. Yes. Um, well, your question, I hope you'll love, um, is can you name all of the Oscar nominated or winning members of the Redgrave family? Oh, gosh. Okay. I doubt it. Okay, so Oscar winning or nominated Redgraves. So we have uh, Vanessa Redgrave. Of course. Nessa to her friends, which we are not. <laughs> um, nominated or winning, though, for... Because I, I was then just going straight in for the daughters, but I don't think either of them are nominated for Oscars. Don't think no. Julie is no Julie nor Natasha were, were have not been nominated. Um, God, God, this is going to really stump me big time. Michael Redgrave. No, I'm actually really surprised how little the Redgraves have been nominated for Oscars. No, what wasn't Michael Redgrave was nominated oh. for Morning Becomes Electra, right? Oh my God, here, here I am lying. Caddy, a quizmaster doesn't know what he's doing. You're totally right. Apologies, you did get paid. Oh wow! Okay, thank you, Zita. Thank goodness you're here. Scored me another point <laughs> by by outwitting the quizmaster. Um, okay, so that's to I. To be honest, I don't know that I could start reeling off names of others within this. Um, Think dynasty. of someone we just talked about in the Brendan Fraser podcast that we absolutely loved. Hold on, that is a Redgrave and a Brendan Fraser. Oh, of course, Lynn Redgrave. How silly of me. Why did I not go there first? Dafty. Yeah. And of course, um, oh God. Uh, so surely it's only, there can't be any more than that, is there? Well, I would have thought there was, but unless Zita's going to tell me there's more, I don't believe so, because there are more Redgraves working in film, but no, no, no. I guess there are, there are, Husbands, where you could say Liam Neeson was Mr. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question. Zita, you are rolling over uh, Scott in this quiz. <laughs> Comfortably. Um, oh, okay, well, here we go, Zita. Let's see how, how you probably will know this, so I'm not going to build it up too much. So this is a bonus question on the Redgrave round. Both of you can answer if you like. Lynn Redgrave is the only person to hold an awards-related stat do you know what that is? An American awards related stat. I'll give you a hint if you can't, because this is tricky and a bit wild, but I just couldn't skip this bit of trivia. Two nominations. Oh, so think wider than the Oscars. Oh, okay. Think, think more EGOT style. Oh. Is she, she's the only person to be nominated for all of them and not win any? Yeah, that's exactly it. Wow, that's... Isn't that exactly. amazing? <laughs> Is that a good stat or a bad stat? I do not know. <laughs> I don't, uh, 
well, at least she's got the nominations. It's better than being completely unrecognized. Okay, so Zita, here's another hard question for you, even though you did get the got one in the end. Um, so far, there is only one instance of a father and his children being nominated for the same award. Do you know what film that was or who the father was? Might be an easier one. Oh, so children, plural. Yes, so it says father and two children is nom- are nominated for this award. So sorry, was it in the same category in the same year? It, for the same, yeah, same category. They worked together and they all got this nomination, oh. this one nomination. Okay, interesting. So producing, I guess. Uh... I guess I could tell you it's a script writing oh, award. okay. Oh, was it the In America situation? Sorry, I don't I know his daughter's names. No, Naomi and Kirsten. Um, I had to, of course, put the Irish uh, family uh, stamp <laughs> in there somewhere. Um, yeah, In America. What? I'm surprised anyone remembers that film. But in obviously in Ireland, that was a big deal. What a lovely film I remember with a little, a lot of racism, I imagine, questionable stuff there about black magic. Yeah. I can't remember now, but that's, it's a while since I've seen it. Um, okay, Scott, here we go. There is one pair of siblings that have won lead acting awards. But each, obviously not together. Who are they? One pair of siblings that have won lead acting awards. God, this one's one that's going to be really easy and, and Zeta's sitting there thinking, you dummy, you should be answering this straight away. Let me stew for a minute. Mm. Stew. I will say it's one of my, one of them is one of my all-time favourite actors and one is kind of beyond, it doesn't matter if I like them or not because there's no way to deny they're so good on screen, but one I absolutely love. Um, is it? I'm just trying to think of what he... I'm blanking on if what he won for. I'm assuming it's Shirley MacLaine and Warren Beatty, but I can't think of him winning ever. No, he didn't. So it's not. He won director. Yeah. He won director. Okay, poor Warren. Right, hold on. So another one. Oh, who's this going to be? Who's this going to be? Who's this going to be? You know what? I don't want to stew on this too long. Zita, what is the answer? So it's Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. That is incredible. <laughs> I would have never, I would have never known that. That's amazing, though. I literally had no idea. So you guys are the old Hollywood nerds. I'm afraid I've been proven very, very different yeah, on this one. It's true. And when you say old, you mean about the time of history we know, not that we're old. I'm no, in this case, just about the time of history, you understand. I would never, never say something like that about our guest. You, on the other hand, Michael, oldest son. Um, well, I had a tiebreaker question, but you know what? We don't need that, because Zita, you are our winner. And you can have whatever prize, Geraldine-related prize you want. Do you have anything in mind that you'd love for her? Well, I would love to dance with her. I think that would be Aww. fantastic. Although I couldn't keep up, I assume. But it would still be fun. <laughs> but she seems like the type of person to be like so gentle and humble. She's like, she'd just be like, yeah, I'll go at your pace. Unless um, she's her character from yeah. Talk to Her, then good luck. 
Oh my god, or any, a lot of the films. I would imagine having Remember My Name version of Geraldine. I'm not sure if I want that done for me. Um, okay, so let's let's look to what we would love to have seen her in or to see her in the future. And again, Zita, as our winner and as our guest, I don't know which one you want to start with, whether it was the remake or a sequel or connecting her to a filmmaker. Well, I, I thought we could start with remake and the one that I was interested in connecting to one of the trivia questions. So there's a very famous Joan Fontaine film called Letter from an Unknown Woman, which is a very fascinating movie about obsession and Joan Fontaine sort of plays a crazy person in it, but there's something oddly admirable about Mm. her devotion to this one man. And I think a young Geraldine Chaplin could have been really interesting in a remake of it, although I know that it would be very difficult to top the original, which is a masterpiece. So I suppose you worry, would they screw it up if they tried to make it again? Yeah, if we could be guaranteed it would reach the heights of that amazing (laughs) film. And what about you, Scott? What's your remake? Uh, My remake is not nearly as sophisticated an answer but go figure (laughs) um i think this was very much linking on to the dance background watching talk to her but i thought of barbara hershey and black swan and i would have loved to have seen um geraldine's version of the ballet mother in the context of that film and, and what it looks like in that world um and i do think she would ace it i actually think her energy can be quite similar um and, and the expressiveness, quite similar to how Barbara Hershey actually plays it, maybe in Black Swan. So maybe it's not too much of a diversion and therefore perhaps not the most um, uh, intelligent of answers. But one I'm pleased with and I'm going to go with that. You guys will not believe this. So I have also written Black Swan, wow. but I was imagining going back in the past when she was younger and playing the Natalie Portman part. Oh, interesting. Oh my God, that's so fun. Look at us. We are more in sync than I would have ever thought. Um, Because she has this sort of anxious, highly strong energy, which would work really well. And as I mean, I think Natalie Portman is incredible in Black Swan. But Geraldine Chaplin, I guess this is because she was a dancer, is very like, there's something that when you look at her, you're like, yeah, she is a you know, this ballet, she is a dancer. Um, so that would have been, I guess, more natural to her. But anyway, of course, what a gift. I, if I could, and I guess this goes into what you're saying about Letters of an Unknown Woman, I would, there's so many performances, I'm like, oh, I'd love to see a different actor play that all the time. Because I was also thinking The Father, which I bring up all the time for older actors. But what a gift to watch somebody. Yeah, oh, but I just love as an acting exercise. Um, yeah. And what next, Zita, was would you like to talk about? Sequel or filmmaker? Oh, well, we could do sequel, which I think could yeah. be difficult with some of our films. Yeah. Quite <laughs> definite endings where you think, mm, I don't know where the story would go from here. Mm, but sure. I was drawn to an early Merchant Ivory film, Roseland, which she was in, which is made up of these different vignettes that are loosely based around romantic relationships. And the one that she's involved in involves a love triangle in which Christopher Walken is this kept man who 
dates various older women and she is one of them. And I found that story to be fascinating where he's just so attached to that lifestyle that he can't imagine breaking out of it. And I think those characters were so interesting that I would be interested in seeing a sequel to the film, preferably another Merchant Ivory picture, just because I think they do so well with literary adaptations and stories about delicate, sensitive people. And I think it would have been interesting to see just a couple of years down the line how those characters ended up. I love it. Yeah. I also, one of the remake ideas I was thinking, and then I was like, no, this actually performance's weight is untouchable and I don't want to do anything about it, was A Room with a View and recasting Maggie Smith's part with Geraldine. Um, but I think Maggie does that sort of role of like uptight woman who cares about society way too much um, so well. But yeah, oh, I actually, okay, I need to watch this Merchant Ivory film. Amazing. Yeah, it's hold on that. Um, I'll go next because my answer is incredibly weak because I've barely seen any. Uh, so it's almost like I don't have an answer, but just as kind of default, I actually did say talk to her because I would I would definitely like to spend more time with her character. So if we can explore where she's at and where her life as this dance teacher is at, there's plenty of directions we could go. We can get Penelope and the gang in. It would be it could be a great time compared to the the circumstance of talk to her. So um, that's going to be my answer. Well, mine is pretty boring too because I feel ill-equipped in terms of all of her filmography. But I was reading that there was talk, and this is from Robert Altman, that there was going to be a sequel to Nashville and be called Nashville 12, set 12 years later. Um, And apparently there was a script and a lot of the characters came back. So I'm assuming Geraldine would come back too. I'm not sure, like that, that film seems so perfect as it is. So I'm kind of glad that didn't happen. But at the same time, if it was equally as fascinating, I would totally watch it. So that was my choice. But pretty bland, <laughs> I guess. Um, and yeah, and lastly, Zita, what is your last wish or past hope, I guess, for Geraldine? Well, in terms of the modern cinema landscape, in terms of directors that I'd like to see her work with, I think she could have an interesting collaboration with someone like Mia Hansen-Love, where mm. she's this important European art house director. And I think she's really capable of working with older actresses and understanding why people are fascinated by stories about women who aren't 21. And so I think that could be a really fruitful collaboration and I would like to see her in a Mia Hansen Love movie. I'm absolutely seconding that. That is an absolutely gorgeous idea. Good one, Zita. Um, mine is then going to go on the, uh, the darker side of the French footing, and I'm going to go uh, Julia de Carnot, who directed Titan and Raw. I think there is... Uh, something that Geraldine could bring to this really bleak and uncomfortable landscape that um, Ducano has created so far in her films. And I just think she would fit in very well. Um, 
I think also the based on what we've seen so far from that director, the possibilities are endless. So therefore, you know, you could probably pop anyone in. But I don't know. I just get a real sense that they could work really well together, and she could play a character that that covers all of these things, can make you feel uncomfortable. You're a bit um, unnerved by the presence, whatever it might be. I think there's something in that. So that's going to be my one. What about you, Michael? Mine, so something I had associated with Geraldine, which I haven't seen in the films we were watching, is, and I guess that's because of, of basically the orphanage, is more of a fairy tale element or her being part of that sort of aesthetic. I was thinking, like, how good would it have been in the 80s, 90s if a collaboration with, say, Tim Burton? But then I was thinking Tim Burton, at the moment anyway, hasn't has been not been delivering his greatest uh, work. So I was trying to think, who else? And I was like, this right in front of me because he was involved in the creation of the orphanage, Gilmero de Toro. And to think like, imagine, I I just imagine some sort of structure around her and history and ghosts. And I'd have no idea. I'd look like he has such a specific sort of mind that I would hate to try and put a story upon that. But she would fit into the world. Like, if you think of, like, Nightmare Alley, she could have easily been one of those cast members in that. Um, And she's so glamorous. And, like, I just think her she's such a striking presence on film. And the way that he lights his films (laughs) and shoots them, she would just be so, like, such a stunning... um, uh, addition to his work so I would love a story though where she is the main character rather than say you know Bjork recently in The Northman where she turns up for a scene and, and is very memorable and exciting you're like no Geraldine deserves a proper story and like Shape of Water-esque following her trajectory doing something so yeah I would love to see that that would be my wish and I kind of hope that there are filmmakers there trying to or not trying to but wanting to work with her and banging down her door and she seems up for it for the right thing yeah let's just presume from this point on people are going to like wake up tomorrow morning and be like Geraldine Chaplin that's where it's at remember yeah. my name is all is like up there with the greatest performances ever celebrated and what a wonderful and better world we would live in if that was the case um but in my little way, I'm so grateful, Zita, for you coming onto our podcast and bringing Geraldine. Um, yeah, you've made my life a little bit better bringing her oh, into it. Here, <laughs> No, I'm happy to spread the gospel of Geraldine. <laughs> yeah. And where can people find you for more, um, for more inspirational, I was going to say Bible telling, I <laughs> missell your podcast. But a religiously, a spiritual experience rather than religious experience. Where can people find you? So I'm on Twitter at Zeta underscore shot and the podcast is at 300 Passions. It's available on most podcast streaming platforms on the internet. And other than that, I also work as a film critic for Jump Cut Online and In Session Film. So you can read my work there. Wonderful. I love that. I will be sure to be reading you a lot more and I hope everyone listening does too. Thank you.
And Scott, where can people find us? So if you want to drop us a line, you can do so through the old social medias. You can get us on Instagram and Twitter at don't know her underscore pod. Or if you fancy emailing, why not? You can get us on email at don't know her pod at gmail.com. Amazing. Yes. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, do share the podcast with people you think would enjoy it. Do seek out these films. There will be some links in the notes. And yeah, rate, review. And yeah, just keep listening. Thank you so much. Thank you, Zita, again. That's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Zita. Oh, thank you. The pleasure was all mine. <laughs> See you later, guys. Bye-bye. Have a good one. <laughs>